Well, welcome to prayer lesson one. And our first lesson is entitled, What is Prayer? This is a critical thing. And uh, we want to cover this. And I don't take for granted that just because we're Christians and we go to a spirit-filled church and we pray in tongues, that doesn't mean we understand prayer. If we understood prayer and if we were proactive with prayer, all of our lives would be a lot different. And one of the things I constantly warn us or encourage us as, as pastor here is that just because you know something in your head does not equal you doing it, right? Just because you know something in your head doesn't mean you're doing it. And we, in this day of knowledge abounding, we tend to equate knowledge as action. And knowledge is not action. Knowledge is knowledge. And again, the, the uh, analogy I use is that if knowledge is equal to action, then every one of us here would be a homosexual. Because every one of us here has homosexual knowledge. We understand homosexual doctrine. If knowledge was the equivalent of action, then every one of us here would be a pedophile. Because, uh, well, you know, if action is the equivalent of knowledge and knowledge equals action, we all know how pedophiles work and what they think. But that doesn't make us a pedophile, thank God. If that's the case, if knowledge equals action, then we're all murderers. Because we all know how to kill somebody. We actually may be more murderers than we are homosexuals or pedophiles because we've all wanted to kill somebody. But just because you know and have a desire does not equal action. It doesn't equal change. Uh, and so even for that regard, knowing something and even having the desire to do it doesn't equal anything in your life. Right? So I'm, I'm going to teach on prayer for these next four lessons so that we can learn what we already know, but maybe this time have the faith to do it. The Bible says faith comes by hearing. And real faith, real faith is not just education. Real faith is not just a brain full of more information. Real faith can't help but act. When you're full of faith, you've got to do something. And maybe even that regard, we change how we understand faith because we thought faith was just sitting and hearing and sitting and hearing and hearing some more and sitting some more and sitting and hearing and hearing and hearing. But when you truly have faith, something on the inside of you compels you to get up and make a change. Make something different. Do something you didn't know you could have done before. And say, my God, that's my answer. I'm going to get up and do something about this. That's faith. When everybody heard about Jesus and his healing ability, their faith compelled them to find him. And here in America, as Daniel prophesied, where knowledge abounds, and more and more knowledge shall increase and abound, we have all this knowledge and we do very little with it. So I say all that to say over the next four weeks as we teach on prayer, Understand, just having a polished doctrine doesn't make you spiritual. Uh, I have a very watertight, polished doctrine on the doctrine of evolution because I studied it in college, but it doesn't make me a believer in evolution, doesn't make me a proponent of evolution, doesn't mean I'm going to sing its praises. I just understand it. And I really fear that probably a bulk of the body of Christ in America just has a good understanding. Because if our life reflected what we knew, our life would be better. And if we acted on what we knew, our life would be better. So let's jump into this. What is prayer? Prayer is vital to Christian success and power. If we're not succeeding, the first place we need to judge is our prayer life. If things are not changing, if they are status quo, if they are remaining, we need to judge our prayer life. We understand as Christians, with, and I'm going to assume we all have a basic foundational doctrine, we understand, number one, prayer works. And prayer can change anything. Is that right? We understand that. It doesn't mean we're doing it. But we understand that. That is our general belief. We prescribe to that. 
doesn't mean we're, we're living it, but I'm going to assume as we teach this that we all believe those two critical things. Number one, prayer works, and number two, prayer can change anything. Now, with that being said, if prayer works and if prayer changes anything, we ought to be changing because we ought to be praying. We understand it's critical to success. If our life is not successful in some capacity that God wants it successful, we need to evaluate our life. If your life has stayed stagnant more than one year in a row, you don't pray enough. All right, yeah, I expect weak answers because I'm, I'm a little punchy this morning because I'm a little fired up about a few things. The condition of America being one of them. And that's to blame the church. But at the same time, we've got to bring it down to our own personal level. And, and it's before we can change America, before we can change a nation, before we can change a government, you can't even change yourself. You know, we weren't taught faith so we can buy Rolex watches and drive big cars and, and you know, whatever. We were taught faith so that we would be different. And sometimes the biggest mountain, Mark 11, 23, 24, and 25, commands us to move is our own fat heart. Our own stubbornness, our own selfishness, our own pride, our own lust, our own greed, our own insecurity, our own fear. Prayer, whatever, say to this mountain, we thought he was talking about Kilimanjaro, Everest. What if that mountain defeating you is your own weird, perverse heart? That ought to be a lot easier to change than Kilimanjaro. That ought to be a lot easier to change because you can look at it every day, chisel away at it. That ought to be a lot simpler to change than actually speaking to Mount Everest and saying, be cast into the sea. Honestly, it ought to be easier to change your heart than it is the government. I, I kind of think, you know, we're a little bit smaller than the bureaucratic industrial complex that is the United States of America and this nation. We ought to be the easiest cog to go, tweak. <laughs> the problem is we have to change. And oftentimes it's easier to see for them to change than it is for us to change. There seems to be much confusion, especially in America, as to what prayer is and what it is not. And let me throw this out there. The devil, if you do not make time to pray, the devil will always make sure you have some lame, crippled excuse why you can't. And it's called a distraction. And there's always going to be something sucking your time out of you. It's amazing. We will always make time for what our God is. You will always make time for your God. And so, therefore, if we don't pray, who's our God? If, we don't have, if we're not in our Bible every day, who's our God? Is it your food appetite? Is it Facebook? Is it family? Is it Pharaoh? Mammon? Hobby? You will always make time for your God. Always. So you answer me why the American church doesn't pray more. You answer me why the American church doesn't know their Bible better. They have a different God because it ain't the God of the Bible. Because if it was the God of the Bible, they'd be in prayer, they'd be in the word, their lives would be changing. Everything has an element of true excuse to it. Well, I have to take care of this. You may have to, but you better make room for God. Amazing, David was a king. Anybody think a king is just a little busy? In between wars and inventing musical instruments, you know, he invented half the instruments they used in Israel. And once you invent an instrument, then you have to figure out how to play the thing. And then you got to teach everybody how to do it. So the Bible doesn't say this, but we can assume it because it's logical common sense. You invent an instrument and you have that instrument on your worship team. You probably also develop a music school of some sort. We know David was the greatest worshiper of the entire Old Testament. 
Uh, he's more than a little busy because he isn't just the greatest military leader. He isn't just the greatest king Israel ever had. He isn't just the greatest architect Israel ever had. He's also the greatest worship leader. Isn't that just a little busy? And yet he said, early in the morning will I seek your face. How do you think he was so successful? Why do you think we're not? All right, I'm preaching pretty good. I don't know who's making me so hot, but I want to throw some chairs or something. Yeah, just trying to save our nation by saving your, your life first. America's confused as to what prayer is and what it's not. With the infusion of Middle Eastern and pagan religions, and we might even add uh, New Age, thank you, Rick Warren, into our society and culture, there seems to be some confusion as to what, who to pray to and how to pray. We will address these issues here. So let's look at this first section, what biblical prayer is not. Biblical prayer has nothing to do with candles. <laughs> Amen. Nothing against candles. The candle is nothing. The demon is nothing. <laughs> but if you like it, light a candle to a demon, to a demon, you'll get a demon. And candles are just paraffin and a wick. Thank God for candles. But if you have to have candles to have a relationship with God, you're weird. Uh, I'm not against dimming lights to set a, a prayer atmosphere, but if you have to have dim lights to worship God, you're weird. I'm not against it, but Paul and Silas, you know, it was a midnight hour. Maybe it was dark in there, but I don't think they needed darkness to worship God and sing praises. And then at the same time in the, in, uh, the Bible, when Jesus worshiped the Lord on the Mount Transfiguration, there was light everywhere. There was no mood lighting. There was just light. And I got to think in heaven when the angels say, holy, 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 there's no dimmed lighting there. Because uh, in him, there's no shadow of turning, no variableness. So we really get kooky, spooky. Weird. A lot of stuff is just borrowed from the world anyway. Again, I'm not against it. You know, if you want to dim the lights and set the mood. What is this, Barry White? Are we turning the house of God into a discotheque? My darling, I can't get enough of your love, babe. No, that's, that's a sex song. Any worship. But, you know, when you condition the flesh to want something to get into God's presence, if they can't reproduce it at home, they have no walk with God at home. So maybe a lot of these churches, and I'm friends with lots of them, they're crippling their church. Because if you have to have everything just perfect to worship God, what are you going to do if you're being persecuted? Light a candle. <laughs> Prayer has nothing to do with rubbing any kind of charm or necklace or bead. You know, a pastor, my, one of my pastors, Pastor Darren, used to, he used to jokingly say when we got stressed out, he said, chill, light a candle, rub a bead, it'll be all right. <laughs> Uh, prayer in fellowship with God has nothing to do with any kind of charm, any kind of amulet. That's all superstitious paganism. Uh, not to knock our Catholic brothers and sisters, but the Catholic crucifix looks a whole lot like Buddhist beads. And they use them as a spiritual abacus to know when they're done praying. Move on to the next bead. Move on to the next bead. You know, you might say, well, praise God, they're praying. Yeah, but we don't need some kind of Holy Ghost necklace abacus to figure out how long we've prayed for. I like what Brother Hagin taught. You just pray till you get the note of victory. Then you're done. And you just pray till the burden is gone. And for, of course, most Christians, their whole life is burdened, so they don't even know where to start to pray. So they just don't. Prayer is not silent and mental. We catch a lot of flack on that one, specifically in our jail ministry. Uh, in our jail ministry here lately, because we teach a thing on prayer, we call it keys to biblical or, or Christian maturity. One of them is prayer, and so we cover prayer is not silent and mental. <laughs> There's two lessons we teach in the jail ministry that cause just about jail riots. Number one is 
submission to authority. That one causes a jail riot. And you think, duh, you're in jail because you have no submission to authority. And the premise of that lesson is Jesus is the author of submission and Satan is the author of rebellion. You're here because you're more a child of this devil than you are God Almighty. So that one goes over like a lead balloon. But so does this one here. And I tell our folks as they come back, Pastor, do we want to maybe reword this? I tell them, you tell those inmates to shut up. They're in jail. Their life doesn't qualify them to disagree with you. I'm so tired of Christians wanting to disagree when their life looks like the devil anyway. So prayer has nothing to do with silence or meditation. Now, there is a biblical element of meditation, and we talk about, I was meditating on God's word. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means to murmur. So you're quoting it over and over again. We've kind of evolved the word meditation into Christian uses. And what we mean is, as Paul said, the meditations of my heart upon my bed. We take the word of God and we just roll it over and over in our heart, thinking on it and almost taking the word of God like a Rubik's Cube, pardon the expression, and just saying, Lord, what do you mean by that? And I think we all understand that. That's not prayer, though. That's something totally different. And we'll cover that because it always upsets folks when you tell them that all that mental jargon they've been doing in their head isn't actually moving God. It might be, but in the wrong direction. Because he said, these people do draw near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. So when they pray out of their heart and silent, it's saying, God, I hate you. God, I hate you. Their mouth says the right thing, but their heart does not. Now, when I say meditation in this, I'm talking about Hindu meditation, Buddhist meditation, and med transcendental meditation, which a lot of churches are bringing into their church. Uh, we don't have time to cover that, but a lot of them are bringing in that kind of stuff, and it's just straight demonism under the guise of Christian prayer. Prayer has nothing to do with any cardinal direction, nor is it based on the location of the sun. Uh, you know, the Muslims pray five times a day based on the sun, the position of the sun. I asked my Muslim boss one time, what happens if you're a Muslim in Alaska and you don't see the sun for six months? Who do you pray? Where do you pray? How do you pray? He said, I don't know. You'd have to ask my brother. He's more of a devout Muslim than I am. Uh, we don't have to pray towards the east. Uh, early American Christians buried all the bodies pointing to the east because that's the coming of the Son of God. So all in anticipation of the resurrection of the dead. And then, of course, we always talk about folks say uh, there's a Christian tradition that says, uh, to what do you call it when you burn a body up? Cremation. Cremation. I was going to say incineration, but that's so tactless. <laughs> it's the same thing. I guess it's just the term applied. They incinerate fetuses when they abort them. They cremate humans. I think they're one and the same. Uh, anyway, uh, there's Christians that hold to the belief that you shouldn't cremate a body because then how will God resurrect it from the dead? And I always shake my head and I think, um, he's God and he's going to give it a brand new body. And don't you think the saints that were buried, I don't know, 2,000 years ago, is their body not been some kind of been sucked up into a tree that was planted over their grave and it's been changed into fruit five times over and somebody ate it and somebody passed it out and it went back into the river or something? Don't you think the molecules that made up a saint from 2,000 years ago are scattered further than if we incinerated a human being? What about the, the Christians that died in war and they were incinerated or blown to bits? I mean, come on, it's, it's ridiculous. But that's just as bad as thinking we got to pray to the east or bury our dead to the east. I mean, bury them. My mama taught me that she wants to be, when she dies, she wants to be cremated and have her ashes sprinkled over the mall. 
because uh, she just, <laughs> just to honor where she spent all of her life's money at the mall. <laughs> and I have said, if I live to, uh, if I live to be an old man and the Lord doesn't come back, cremate me turn on a big fan at my funeral service and throw the ashes in front of the fan and blow it all over everybody that came to honor me so they can all go home with a little bit of Pastor Chris and make everybody laugh one last time. (laughs) Prayer has nothing to do with walking a labyrinth. You wouldn't believe how many American Christian denominations have incorporated prayer labyrinths. The Methodist church over here has a prayer labyrinth. Yeah, right off of Spring Street. If you drive up Spring Street, before you get to the square, look on the left, they have a prayer labyrinth. Pit of hell demonic. It looks like it's a Celtic symbol, and you you walk it, and you just meditate and reflect. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Methodist churches, Episcopal churches, all these, you know, uh, nearly apostate denominations have embraced this sinfulness. Not all Methodist churches, not all Episcopal churches, but, you know, the mainline ones. Prayer has nothing to do with a shawl, a hat, or a special rug. (laughs) Because again, if it was, we'd find it in the epistles. We don't see Paul needing any of that to have God show up. The Lord appeared to Paul several times and it'd say, it's because you're sitting on the right rug with the right hat and the right shawl. It's the right combination. You lucked out today. Here I am. No. What about Gideon? What was he sitting on when the angel appeared to him? Nothing. And the Lord appeared to Noah because he found grace, not because he found a hat. You know, if you want to pray with a hat, pray with a hat. Here in the South, we don't because it's just improper. Africans pray, West Africans pray with their head covered. It's just a true cultural thing. But you don't have to have that to pray. Who cares? Prayer is not toward the non-Virgin Mary. Non-Virgin. Non-Virgin. That means she had sex. Jude says... But Jude was the brother of Jesus Christ. James was the brother of Jesus Christ, which means Mary had kids. Apparently lots of them. And I bet she had sex more than just one time to each, create each kid. So the fact that the Catholics would venerate a saint like we're saints and make an idol out of her and call her Queen of Heaven. Well, Queen of Heaven was first ascribed to Ishtar, Ashtaroth, the Babylonian goddess. It's amazing it makes its way to the church. Uh, We don't pray to the non-virgin Mary. She died a non-virgin. Just FYI. Prayer is not toward any dead family member. This region's pretty steeped in this cultural superstition. We go out to the graves. We decorate the graves. We go visit the graves. We talk at the graves. There's just something cathartic about talking to Grandpa. He's dead, probably in hell. And if something talks back, it ain't God. Amen. Prayer is not toward a dead apostle or other dead Christian. I'm working through a tremendous book right now. I'm using it as like a daily devotional. And it's actually written by an Orthodox bishop. And it's called A Great Cloud of Witnesses. And it's basically a study of all the saints that the Orthodox churches venerate. That means worship or honor uh, throughout the year. And I'm studying it because it has a lot of church history of the early martyrs. Uh, but then, and, and I, like, I appreciate the church history. That's why I'm reading it, depending on what saint of the year it is. But I, it always grieves me when it talks about, this is why we venerate, and these are the prayers we pray to St. Basil. 
This is why we pray to Saint Mary, uh, the Virgin of, of you know, uh, Demetria, because it covers the saints, uh, the venerated saints from the times of Christ all the way to about the eighth century, and all the monks, and all the ascetics, and all the monastics, and all the mystics that the Catholic and the Orthodox Church uh, embrace. Uh, this has nothing. Prayer has nothing to do with any of that. Those guys can't answer your prayers for nothing. They, they can't help you for nothing. They're in heaven in the great cloud of witnesses, and that's where they'll stay. And we understand that, but many folks don't. So if you pray to these dead people, you're, 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 you're really deceived. And if you think St. Thomas or St. Peter or St. Jude can help you, you're deceived. You've been lied to. All we need is the Holy Ghost, the Word of God, and God our Father. That's the Trinity. To think that we need to pray to certain saints is to say the Trinity ain't enough. Amen. It's just, it's just pagan. Prayer is not made through any man on your behalf. I tell folks all the time they come to me and they want to confess something. I say, look, I'm not your priest. We're not Catholic. Don't confess. Don't feel like you've got to confess your sins to me, though sometimes there is a proper place for that. And I just always clear that up. And then sometimes people will say, I want you to pray for me. All right, just as long as you realize that your faith is no better or less than my faith, pray for yourself. Sometimes they think because maybe they're dirty and I'm clean that our prayers are mine stronger than theirs. God wants to hear from you more than he wants to hear from me for you, right? I might want to hear how Alan's doing, but I'd, and if Will can tell me how Alan's doing, great, but I'd rather hear from Alan. And oftentimes we do this when folks are backslidden out of the church. Let's say Steve will backslides, and I, I want to check on him. And maybe somebody who's friends with Steve who outside the church says, hey, I just heard from Steve-O. How's he doing? Oh, he's just good. You know, but I'd much rather hear from Steve-O. How you doing, man? I need to come home. Yes, you do. Come on home. We can understand how God the Father is the same way. Prayer is not limited to the confines of a church service. You don't have to just pray here. We know that. But some folks think there's holier ground on church with which to reach heaven. Throughout the entire Old Testament, God appeared mostly to people in farming land. He appeared to them on the back of a mountain. He appeared to them keeping the sheep. Who were the first people the angels appeared to about the birth of Christ? Were they in the temple? What were they doing? Keeping their flocks. What did they smell like? Sheep. <laughs> Probably nodding off. Uh, God, God can speak to you outside of church, and you need to know that. Prayer does not require special clothing or garments. That's different than your prayer shawl, your prayer robe, your prayer hat, and your prayer rug. Uh, this is like a priestly garb or a, a cloistered monk or a cloak or a clerical's collar. Or, you know, some churches, they have, I don't know what it is. I've always asked the bishops. I've wanted to ask them, what's on the end of that chain that hangs off your thing and droops right there? Is that a pocket watch? Is it a crucifix? Is it something, you know, it's an esoteric kind of thing that only the informed get to have it? Is it like a decoder ring is it a magnifying glass because all you bishops are blind? What is the thing on the end of the chain? They never, I've never had the audacity to ask, but I'm getting a little bit more confident. I want to see the chain. And what happens if I pull it? Will you fight? <laughs> or do you have a secret saying that I pull that and you repeat it over and over again? You don't, and they do that for the ceremonial reasons, but you don't have to have any of that to pray. And just because you do have it doesn't mean you're going to pray any better. Amen. I've stood on platforms preaching with people of all sorts of different denominations and different cloistered robes or collars. didn't make them a better preacher. It certainly didn't make them holy. Amen. Prayer is not limited to a prayer closet. 
And of course, the world likes to turn Bible scholar when it comes to this thing. And when the church wants to pray out loud, they say, doesn't your Bible say pray in a prayer closet? Yes, it does. But since when were you the Bible scholar, it also says declare it from the rooftops. So you don't have to just have a prayer closet. You ought to pray over your meals. I know it makes me smile when I go out to eat and I see families bowing their head. That gives me hope that the families are still brave to pray. And we shouldn't just be uh, stuck with our prayer closet. Simply put, prayer is not some ostentatious religious ceremonial act. It is the basis for our fellowship with God himself. We can talk to God and he will hear us. So here are some examples of unceremonial, that means without religious formality, prayer. Just to kind of drive home the point that maybe there's an ounce of religion left in some of us. Maybe there's a lot more than ounces. Maybe it's like a metric ton ounce of religion, and you don't think you can just pray anywhere you want to. Samson prayed as a slave chained between two pillars. You don't get any more unceremonial than that. Actually, he prayed right before he committed suicide. Go figure. Gideon prayed from within a wine press while doing hard work. He was probably just in a loincloth, probably sweaty, threshing wheat, probably covered. If you can imagine, it's Palestine or the Middle East. He's sweaty. He's throwing the chaff up. And you know some of it's raining down on him. He probably looked like some kind of wooga-booga monster just with fine grains stuck to him everywhere. Probably just his eyes and his teeth and his hair and his beard and everything else just... A weird, gross texture, if you can imagine what I'm talking about. You ever full of grass seed and got your hand wet and stab your hand in the grass seed and it gives you the weebie-jeebies because it's just gross looking? He probably looked like that. And the angel says, hey, mighty man of valor. He's like, who? <laughs> Me? Yeah, you. He's like, you don't have to be ceremonial to pray. Jonah prayed from within the belly of a well and then from hell. You don't get too much more unceremonial than from within a fish being digested by gastric juices, much less from the pit of hell like Jonah 2 says he prayed from the pit of hell. Paul and Silas prayed while in chains in prison. I love that story because they go, they get taken out, they preach the gospel to him and their whole household, it says, and then they clean their wounds. <laughs> so you take them home, they're bleeding, and while they're bleeding, they, they preach the gospel first and tell them about the God of salvation and then their wounds get cleaned up. But they prayed and sang praises. They didn't have to be all spit-polished and primrose, all that. They, they just cried out to God. Now, again, on the flip side of this, and I guess it's worth sharing, uh, I've heard stories or testimonies of people being uh, so consumed with their looks when they go out in public or so consumed with their looks when they go on the job or so consumed with their looks, uh, maybe if they're engaged or dating, that I heard one lady say the Lord dealt with her and said, you dress up for everybody but me. And he said, the Lord convicted her and said, in the morning when you get up to spend time with me, I want you in your best. And it was to lean the other direction because she was giving God her dregs while she was honoring everybody else in her life, her boss, her, her fiance, maybe her family, maybe the business. And God said, enough of that. And I can see, I, you can certainly see how the Lord would do both. You know, here we're trying to lean against religiosity and encourage folks you, you can be in your underwear. You can be in the nursing home. You can be sick in bed, looking horrible, and cry out to God, and he'll heal you. Jesus and the thief prayed while crucified to a cross. How about that? Now, we always see pictures of Jesus in a loincloth, but Roman tradition, history tells us Jesus was probably buck naked. 
Think about that. All of humanity can see the Son of God's shame. The Old Testament calls nakedness your shame because nobody wants to run. You've got to be a weird deviant to want to run around naked, either that or an innocent little child. But even children come to an age where they realize, I've got to start covering this stuff up because of the sin nature and the conscience. Uh, that may be part of the shame. Hebrews affirms that for the sh- uh, despise the shame, but for the joy set before him. The Son of God being crucified totally naked in front of everybody. You don't get any more unceremonial than that. And he, he prayed several times on the cross. And God, I think God heard him. David prayed while living in a cave. You don't have to have a fancy house to pray in. Paul prayed on a ship in front of many unbelievers, chained. He, he was on, a, he was on a, a ship as a slave being transported to Rome. Here's the controversial part. And you can't debate me because I know the Bible better. And I've studied this out since uh, 1997. And I've never found any errors in it. You can disagree with me all you want. But we'll make the arguments here. Prayer is vocal. If it ain't vocal, it ain't prayer. It's meditation. It's reflection. It's, It's mental Rubik's cubing. But it ain't prayer. Prayer can be defined as petition and intimacy towards God, but prayer more simply defined is talking to God. One of the greatest lies of religion is that prayer can be silent and mental. Mental prayer is not prayer. Prayer is spoken. Prayer is not meditation. However, there is a biblical meditation. Now, just to throw a couple examples at you, Jesus Christ said... What to the mountain? What do you do to the mountain? Speak to it. How do you cast out devils? Speak. They said, with this man's word, he casteth out devils. Uh, Jesus said, by your words, you're justified, and by your words, you're condemned. I've not included it in this lesson, but in both the Hebrew and the Greek language, for the word for prayer, in its definition, is the word oration. An oration is something done orally. As in, if it's not an oration, it's not technically prayer. It's classified as something else. Just like if something lives underwater and breathes through gills, it's technically something not a mammal. Right? One little thing changes what it's defined as. But now why why do we have this religious battle that, oh, no, no, we can pray in our mind. God hears our hearts. He hears our thoughts. Yes, he does. But the world does not. And prayer is a manifestation of authority. Try to run your house mentally. Even the deaf communicate with lights, with sign language. I see them wave at each other when I see deaf people in public. They have to communicate. You can't do it mentally. There's no such thing as biblical telekinesis or ESP. You have to speak. God did not think the worlds into existence. He spoke them. And anytime he wanted to do something in the Old Testament, he revealed it to his prophets by his spirit, and then he told them, go and declare. And your major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, they would go out. He would have them go out and do the weirdest things. He'd have them go out to the wilderness, bury a girdle, dig up a jar, go to the potter's house, and prophesy something there to nobody. But speak. And it affected Israel for a generation or two. Nobody heard it but the world. Pagan meditation, coming back now so we'll understand this, because I was raised 
Baptist, and we were taught about silent requests, unspoken requests. And you go to some denominational prayer meetings, it's dead quiet. But I remind you on the day of Pentecost, they were praying. It was so loud, the whole city came running. Was that not spirit-inspired prayer? Yeah. I would even put forth this controversial statement. Very little is accomplished with quiet prayer, even in a church service. Now, the hearts of the people may be reaching towards God, but it doesn't mean anything's changing. You can't cast out devils looking at them or thinking at them. You can't command sickness out of somebody thinking at it. You got to speak to the mountain. Uh, Isaiah says he's giving us a threshing instrument having teeth. And he wants us to thresh. What, What has teeth? Your mouth does. Your mouth has teeth. Pagan meditation. Thinking deeply, or and this is what pagan meditation is, thinking deeply or focusing one's mind for a period of time in silence or often with the aid of chanting. A chanted phrase is called a mantra because it's repeated over and over again. Now, we've assimilated that term into English, so we talk about anything you say over and over again is your mantra. Football teams have mantras. Businesses have mantras. You know, that's a neutral term. But when you chant something over and over again, it's a mantra. This, by the way, is why yoga should be avoided by every Christian. The second you say yoga, look up yoga in your dictionary. It'll say a Hindu form of worship. Webster recognizes yoga as worship. If you want to call it stretching, call it stretching. But the second you say yoga, the demons that inspired it perk up. You wouldn't believe how many churches in America have yoga classes. And so when you do yoga, you call the names. And many of the yoga positions are actually the positions of their demon idols. The lotus position is Buddha. And on it goes and you have cobra. Who worships cobra? The Hindus. And so one of the things they also do in some yoga is they chant and they have these mantras. And many of those mantras are actually the names of their deities. How about you and I just start whispering the name of Satan right now and see what it does to our Sunday school? How about if we start whispering the name of cancer? You can't tell me this stuff is innocent. How come the Christian will participate in yoga and say things vocally, but you can't talk him into doing it with prayer? What hypocrisy and foolishness. Amen. Many Hindu mantras are the names of their demon gods. These mantras are often used in yoga classes. I I absolutely shake my head at any Christian that flirts with yoga. They're just absolutely ignorant. And probably because they go to a church that doesn't teach them any better. Biblical meditation, on on the other hand, is speaking God's word over and over again. That's what the Hebrew says. Often the word means to simply muse or reflect. Also, the sound of a harp when struck is where we get our word meditation. Psalm 1-2 says that we are to meditate on the word of God. Uh, Joshua 1-8 says, This book of the law will not depart out of thy midst, but thou shalt meditate in day and night to reflect on, to muse, or to literally mutter it over and over again to you. We are to think on the word of God and speak it. Biblical meditation is not prayer. Prayer is prayer. Meditation is meditation. Prayer is prayer, meditation is meditation. It is not biblical to pray quietly, that is, to pray in your head. Now, the Lord spoke that to me in October of 1996 
when I was packing up our house, I give you the address, 1156 East Broad out here, and we were moving out of that house over to 4th Avenue because Michael Vaughn was allergic to the mold in this 100-year-old farmhouse we lived in. And I bent over to pick up a box. I was praying in tongues, and the Lord spoke to me and said, don't you know it's not biblical to pray quietly, that is to pray in your head. And I stood up and argued with them, but I'm praying vocally with tongues. And I don't know why I stood up and argued with him. I said, yeah, but, and I gave him three examples of people praying. And I said in my heart, arguing with him, yeah, but they were praying quietly. And the Lord said, nope, well, nope, what, nope. And I went back and studied those three examples. And every time it says that they were praying audibly. I, I debated this with a friend of mine who was a devout theologian. He said, yeah, but if you'll remember the Bible, Elijah when he kneeled to pray at uh, Mount uh, Carmel with the showdown of the prophets of Baal, it says he knelt and said silently. And I said, Jeremy, I don't know about that. I just know what God said to me. And so that kind of tore my heart up that I had something. And I went home and I was actually crying about it, saying, Lord, that doesn't make any sense. I know your spirit. And yet Jeremy says, and, and the Lord said to this, I was crying in prayer. He said, look it up. I'll do that. So I go to my Bible and I was like, I don't know what that story is, Lord. And I was crying about that. And the Lord said, you have a concordance. And I looked it up. And you know what 1 Kings 18 and 19 says? He said out loud. So the only example I've found of anybody in the entire Bible praying silently is this verse I put here. 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, verses 12 through 16. And it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now, this is Hannah. She wants a baby. She's gone into the temple for the annual ceremony, and she wants a baby so bad. Her husband has two wives. She's one of them. The other wife just keeps having kids. She has none. It's a terrible dishonor in Middle Eastern culture to not have any kids for your husband, even though her husband Elkanah says, are you not my most beloved wife? That doesn't do me any good because I want kids. So she's praying, and Eli, the high priest, he's the anointed one. He notices her praying at the altar, so to speak, and he notices that her mouth is moving, but no words are coming out. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Notice in biblical times, vocal prayer is so common that when somebody's not, the holy high priest thinks she's a drunkard. She's doing this because she's intoxicated and out of her mind. That's his first thought. Not, isn't that an unspoken request? Oh, the Lord hear her heart. His first thought is, what's that drunk woman doing in here? And so he says unto her, he interrupts her prayer because this is a sin in his eyes. And he says, how long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. And Hannah said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid as a daughter of Belial or a daughter of the devil. No, that, that discourse escalated quickly. She's praying like a Baptist. And now she's saying, please don't think I'm a daughter of Satan. Again, not to knock Baptists, I'm still one, but I know how I was taught to pray ineffectually. This is the only person in the entire Bible that prays quietly, and she gets rebuked for it by the high priest. She's called a drunkard, and she says, please don't think I'm a wicked, deceptive daughter of Belial. But the, Belial means deceiver, uh, wicked, transgressor. 
all because she prayed in the heaviness of heart and no words came out. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hereunto. She was just speechless, crying. She's trying to make words, but nothing's coming out. She's so burdened. This is the only person recorded in the Bible to have prayed to God silently. Though it was silent, her mouth still moved. She was trying to accomplish this. But the high priest marked her mouth and her lack of sound. It struck him as unacceptable. He judged her to be drunk. This should show us that even under the Old Testament, silent prayer was an oddity and was not what the God of Israel expected from his people. Now, I don't see what's so controversial about that except that 200 years of American religious tradition has stripped us of the power to cast out devils and move mountains. Maybe it's part of the reason the church is so weak because one of our greatest tools has no transmission. We've got a great engine, we got awesome wheels, but because the church has taught us through the power of demon doctrines that we don't have to use our mouth, the transmission's been totally stripped out of this tank or out of this Humvee or whatever you want to uh, uh, equate it to. So in conclusion here, prayer is spoken communion and fellowship and communication with God. Yes, he does hear your heart. But as I, as I teach us, that's not an argument we want to stand on. The Lord knows my heart. Yes, and he said in Jeremiah 17, it's desperately wicked, incurably sick, deceitful above all things who can know it. The Lord himself has to search it because you don't even know what's coming out of it. So we don't want to stand on this thing, the Lord knows my heart. We want to know what's in it ourselves and speak to it to fix it. Prayer keeps the believer's relationship with God fresh and powerful. Prayer is the believer's tool to change the world around them. Prayer brings God on the scene and provides him an avenue to move in your life. Prayer changes the natural course of events and allow God's will to be done. That's what's so critical. We have been given this authority, but it doesn't work in mutedness. So some folks would make the argument, well, what about the deaf mute? Does whose prayers not work? Are you a deaf mute? Doesn't apply to you. God does hear the heart. God answers the request of the heart. We see that in Acts 10 when Cornelius' household hasn't even prayed a single prayer of salvation. And Peter even said in reflecting as he communicated that exchange to the church at Jerusalem, he said, but God who knoweth the hearts hath poured out upon them the Holy Spirit as he did on us in the beginning. Yes, he did know their heart. And I'm convinced that their heart said, I believe, I believe. But it's one example out of the entire book of Acts. And it is not a precedent it is an exception and not a rule. So therefore, if we know to pray vocally and audibly and we don't, we, we're, we're purposely saying, I don't want to go anywhere in God. We all know this, but how much are we doing it? Prayer brings God on the scene and provides him an avenue to move in your life. Prayer changes the natural course of events and allows God's will to be done. Prayer has several different missions or agendas, but they all work to bring God's will to pass in the earth. All right? Prayer has several different missions or agendas, but they all work to bring God's will to pass in the earth. And an infinite God dealing with the affairs of mankind has a lot of different things he's wanting to accomplish. From, from the level of your home, your mind, your household, he wants to affect things there. To your job, he wants to affect things there. To your local church, he wants to affect things there. To your church's influence in the community, he wants to affect things there. To the community or the Christian's influence in the region, to the state, to the nation, to the world. It's multiple levels. And prayer accomplishes all of that. 
We will be studying the different types of prayer over the next three weeks, and there's a lot more to it. We could easily spend a month on each of the seven, eight, nine different types of prayer, but we'll cover three at a time. And the different types of prayer the New Testament speaks of is the prayer of faith, prayer of consecration, prayer of agreement, supplications, intercessions, petitions, giving of thanks, travails, and praying in tongues. So this should help us to know that all tools are not the same, but they all accomplish the same thing they build. But you need a Phillips head, and you need a flathead, and you need an Allen wrench, and you need a star bit, and you need a hammer, and you need a jigsaw, and you need a crescent wrench, and you need a socket wrench. And they all work to do the same thing, but you cannot hammer with a socket. And a star bit ain't going to fix a Phillips head. So if we know all these things, we can uh, better cooperate with the Lord. Amen? Let's bow our heads here and pray. Father, I thank you for this Sunday school and these awesome students. Father, bless our understanding of prayer. Change us, Lord. May we never dampen our mouth. Even as Hannah went on to prophesy after this famous story, she said, the, silent remain, the wicked remain silent in darkness. May we see that the more we open our mouth, the more light we will bring. May we never fall prey to this doctrinal of devils that says prayer can be in our mind. May we learn to pray and communicate with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we got about 12 minutes.